I feel like this is the quintessential Christmas song. Home Alone is the one that I think of. And the homeless men who end up like helping him out is there in an empty church. And I'm pretty sure that's when that song is playing. You hear it with voices, you hear it with instruments. There's that really like amped up version from Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Brings in the violins and the and the electric guitars and all that. We sang this with my high school acapella group and I just remember those bell sounds. Ding dong, ding dong. Welcome back to Hark. I'm Maggie Van Dorn, your host and caroling enthusiast, who despite having no real musical ear or training, is delighted to bring Hark into its second season. Hark is a podcast about the meaning and the making of our favorite Christmas carols. Over the four weeks of Advent, we unwrap one song at a time. We look at the musical development of these jingles, along with the cultural and religious messages baked into their lyrics. If you're new to Hark, welcome. We are so happy to have you. You might consider checking out the five episodes we made last year, including our first, The History of Christmas Carols, which is an excellent primer for what's to come. That said, Hark is what we call evergreen. It's unencumbered by time or trends and 24-hour news cycles. It's where we step into the classics and relish the eternally relevant. And this episode is no exception. We're looking at a Christmas carol that was a hit from the very beginning. One that in the Advent spirit of anticipation both haunts and excites us. All of these elements converging to create this really, really powerful expression of wonderment and mystery and anticipation. The song was born in a period of devastating political warfare and cultural genocide, not unlike what we are witnessing today. And it's a bloody period. They're going after intellectuals. They're going after priests, kind of the people that uphold Ukrainian culture and language. We're talking, of course, about Carol of the Bells. The Ukrainian version of Shchedrik has absolutely nothing to do with Christmas or bells. That's right. Before it was Carol of the Bells, this iconic four-note melody was Shedrik, a Ukrainian folk song. The Ukrainian lyrics talk about a swallow, a bird that comes to a household and summons the master of the house out and tells him to look at his livestock, to look at the coming spring season, to look at his beautiful, dark brown, eyebrowed wife. This is Lydia Tomkyo, a journalist based in New York City. I'm second-generation American. Grew up in a Ukrainian household in California. Grew up speaking Ukrainian. Grew up playing the 65-string traditional bandura Ukrainian instrument. The bandura is like a lyre, and it's been played in wandering Ukrainian minstrel groups for centuries. And in Lydia's home, her family would play shedrik on the bandura. It wasn't until high school that she realized how the wider American culture had snatched her cherished Christmas carol from its Ukrainian roots. A friend of mine in high school was in choir, and he was saying, oh, you know, here's our list of what we're singing this Christmas season. And on the notes for Carol of the Bells, below the title, it said, you know, based on the Ukrainian melody. And he's like, wait, you're Ukrainian? Like, what's the backstory here? Well, as we've established, Shedrik did not have a very Christmassy start. 
And that's because it belonged to a canon of Ukrainian folk music that predated Christian times. So you'd have these songs that people would sing welcoming the spring season, and they'd cover a lot of different topics, nature, birds, bears. I mean, there are hundreds of them. Shedrick translates to the generous one, or simply bountiful, and was translated to English as the little swallow. The song comes from a genre of Ukrainian folk music known as Shedrivka. These are songs written in celebration of a new year, an anticipation of springtime. So how did the song about the little swallow become a worldwide ding-dong sensation? With the help of one Ukrainian composer. And let me make sure I'm saying his name right. Uh, Leontovich? Leontovich. Leontovich. Ukrainian is difficult, as we've seen the last, you know, since February with a lot of people pronouncing city names. After much practice, I can tell you that the composer was Mikola Leontovich. He was also a choral conductor and a teacher. But Lydia will tell you, he almost didn't become any of those things. He was actually born into a family of priests in 1877, you know, a religious family in the Podilia region, um, which is southwestern Ukraine. And he actually went and completed his studies at a rather well-known theological seminary in Ukraine. But instead of entering the priesthood, he pursued a career in music. He had a fascinating musical career. He'd go to Kiev. He was in Moscow, St. Petersburg. And he actually did write quite a bit of religious music, including notably the music for the first Ukrainian language liturgy that's then conducted in 1919. So Leontovich spends several years arranging music. And one of the new songs he arranges is Shedrik. From a lot of the scholars I talked to in Ukraine, They think it's likely he started from a version he probably heard in his childhood in the village in Podilia. And once he arranges it, he sends it to um, a man named Alexander Koshitz, who's a choir conductor in Kiev. He sends him this in August of 1916. Several months later, Koshitz's choir in Kiev performs it, and that's where the journey onto the world stage really starts. Leontovich is composing about a hundred years ago, which, like today, is a tumultuous and bloody period in Ukrainian history. The modern Ukraine that we see on TV now all the time on maps, those borders, that emerges in 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union. But I think it's really important to underscore here, and you know, Ukrainians, the identity existed well before 1991. We have the Romanov dynasty that falls in 1917. And then there's this brief moment in Ukrainian history where a Ukrainian state, the Ukrainian People's Republic, is established, declared in 1918, sort of the first modern version of a Ukrainian state. And the man who's running the state, Simon Petlura, he believes very firmly that they need support of European allies, that they want people to recognize Ukraine. And he saw the value of promoting Ukrainian culture and identity. And he thinks a great way to do this is to find a choir, a conductor, and send people on tour. And so that's what ends up happening. And this is how Shedrick first hits the international stage, as a tool for cultural diplomacy and a means of winning support from other political powers to recognize the sovereignty of Ukraine. And then by 1921, the short-lived Ukrainian People's Republic has fallen. 
And this interwar period, 1918 to 1939, Harvard historian Sidhi Plokhi, he describes it very well as saying the Ukrainians emerge as the largest nation in Europe with an unresolved national question. The territory really gets divided at this point by four European states, so Bolshevik Russia takes a huge portion of it, Poland, Romania, and Czechoslovakia. What else, you know, starts happening in Ukraine, there's this very bloody period known as the Red Terror from 1918 to 1922, in which the Cheka, the Bolshevik police, that's, you know, the precursor to the modern KGB, they kill thousands of people in their effort to consolidate Bolshevik rule. And it's not just military or political forces that they're going after. The Cheka hunts down anyone who is seen to be upholding Ukrainian culture, including intellectuals, artists, priests, even music composers. In January 1921, Leontovich goes to his home village, where he's staying with his father. One evening, there's a knock at the door. It's a man asking for shelter. The family welcomes him in and provides lodging for the night. That evening, the man shoots and kills Mikola Leontovich. The traveler was a secret Soviet officer, and Mikola was targeted as an enemy of the state. And so Leontovich tragically dies, very young still in his life, and doesn't ever get to see what happens with his most famous work and how it really becomes a global phenomenon. Has anyone noted the irony of Leontovich being murdered during Christmas time, which is, if we look at the nativity story itself, is a time of welcoming strangers, of Mary and Joseph seeking shelter for the birth of Jesus and being turned away. And here you have this story of his family, at least, welcoming a stranger, you know, to offer hospitality for the night and then being tragically murdered. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's also very common in Ukrainian tradition. People are very hospitable, welcoming, bringing people into their homes. They're going to feed you way too much, right? That's sort of part of the culture. And this happens a few weeks after Ukrainian Christmas, which was celebrated in, in January. Music is powerful, and those who wield its verses remain lions of culture and identity today. Just a few months ago, in late September, early October, Russian forces dealt another comply-or-die policy to one of Ukraine's top composers. Ukrainian conductor Yuri Kurpatenko was shot and killed in his home by Russian forces for refusing to participate in a concert that they planned in Kherson. Kurpatenko was also a young but accomplished composer at only 46 years of age. He lived and worked in Kherson, a port city in Ukraine that fell early to Russian forces in March 2022. Nearly half the inhabitants fled the city, but Kerpetenko stayed and openly protested the occupation. The final straw appears to have been when Russian forces planned a concert to showcase what they called improvement of peaceful life in the city. Kerpetenko refused to perform propaganda. In early October, he was shot in his own home. Rewinding a hundred years. Despite efforts to silence Ukrainian culture, Leontovich's music played on with the Ukrainian Republic Capella, a national choir of the newly independent Ukrainian People's Republic. 
they set off on a world tour, so they went across 10 countries in Europe for three years, then to North America, where they played 115 U.S. cities. There are great archival records I found of small universities in the American Midwest being really thankful that the choir came and performed for them. But perhaps the most legendary of those tour dates was the first stop on the Capella's North American tour, Carnegie Hall in New York City on October 5th, 1922. So legends have long swirled around what may or may not have happened that night at Carnegie Hall. Um, But we do know they performed it sort of at the first half of their program, and it was the hit of the tour. We know this from Oleksandr Kostic's memoirs. We know this from newspaper reviews. People love this. They wanted encores. They threw flowers on the stage. And whether or not there was a man in the audience that night at Carnegie Hall, we'll never probably be certain. But a gentleman named Peter Woloski, who himself is a really, you know, renowned, famous American choral director, he ends up going to write the famous American lyrics we all know today about sweet silver bells, ding-dong, ding-dong. Do you have any idea why Wolowski might have heard bells? So I managed to track down Peter Wolowski's niece when I was starting to report this. She's sadly since passed away, but I reached her in 2017 by phone in Hawaii. And she told me growing up in their sort of corner of New Jersey with, you know, Eastern European heritage, the church bells would ring at midnight for Christmas. Peter Wilhowski was a classically trained choral director and a music administrator in New York City public schools. He was also born into an immigrant family. His family is from what's sort of northeastern Slovakia today, likely, you know, spoke Rusin, which is kind of another language also found in Ukraine. Now, here's the historic moment when Shedrick becomes Carol of the Bells. He needed to fill out a high school choir program. He needed a new piece. <laughs> and he, he knew his students wouldn't sing in Ukrainian, so he goes ahead and composes the English text, Hark How the Bells, Sweet Silver Bells. And it's broadcast, because he actually does a lot of work also for NBC Radio. And schools start writing to him wanting copies. So this happens in 1936. And this is the crazy part of all of this. Another near miss in history. His friends urge him to submit it to a publisher, and the first publisher rejects it. So he's a little downtrodden, I think, by this. And then a couple weeks later, a salesman from Carl Fisher Music walks into his office, is looking to purchase something, and asks him, you know, do you have anything? And he's kind of like, well, I have this thing. It was just rejected. Take a look. It is purchased. It's one of the best-selling pieces of Christmas music. Well, the rest is history. After the break, we'll hear what makes Carol of the Bells such an irresistible Christmas classic. Stay with us. Welcome back. So, Carol of the Bells went from a Ukrainian folk song about a swallow to sweet silver bells ringing from the world's favorite stages. But what makes this carol so hypnotic, so suspenseful, and so emblematic of the Advent season? For me, Advent is all about waiting for something but not knowing what it is. It can be beautiful and terrifying. 
Colin Brett, everybody. I am a choir director and educator based in New Jersey. I am also a church musician and have been for the last 23 years. If you were with us last season, you're already familiar with Colin. If not, you're in for a real treat. And I'm so happy he's returned to explain what makes this carol so magical. With a song like this, because it's in minor and has all of these chromatic alterations and this sense of building towards a climax, I think it encapsulates what Advent is for us as people. It's that sense of building anticipation and excitement. Well, I can understand why this song is so haunting and it is such an earworm. Like once you hear it, you can't get it out of your head. So what is going on musically here that makes us all love Carol of the Bells? Yeah, I completely agree with you on that. I think one of the things that makes Carol of the Bells so accessible to audiences and makes it such an earworm is the use of repetition. That four-note figure, hark how the bells, repeats to the entire song. In fact, I don't believe there's a single measure except the very last measure where that melody isn't heard in one of the voices. And so even if you don't know the rest of the song, you know, Hark how the bells, sweet silver bells, all seem to say. Uh, You know how that goes. Mm. There's also, that melody is kind of reminiscent of the Dies Irae. What is the Dies Irae? The the Dies Irae, which is a a requiem chant. Which comes around in the early part of the second millennium, like the 1200s, by monks. And it's this kind of doom and gloom, prophetic chant about the coming of the Day of Judgment. In other words, versions of this melody have been circulating for centuries and were reminiscent of the sounds heard in Catholic services to remember the dead. But because it's melodically fairly contained, it it outlines a descending minor third, which is also one of the easiest and most recognizable intervals musically to sing. Um, It's one of the first things we sing as kids. Um, That's a descending minor third. And so this pattern outlines a minor third with the passing note in the middle of it. One, two, three, four, but it's actually three, two, one, which is that minor third that we're talking about. So it's compact melodically, and because of the repetition, it gets in your head really quickly. So there's repetition, but it doesn't get tiresome. No, and I think that's part of Leontovich's genius with this melody. He layers in different voice parts. He adds complexity. He adds harmonic interest. And it builds to this this climax, which is the gaily they ring while people sing songs of good cheer. Christmas is here. That ascending line and that sort of release, that buildup of tension and that arrival point gives it that sense of drama and shape that is really exciting. So we've talked about the use of repetition in the four-note figure. We've heard how the melody would be familiar to both the ancients and children alike. But there's another musical element at play, one that I've never heard of, which really explains what makes this song so fascinating. It's called an ostinato. So an ostinato is a repeating rhythmic and melodic figure. It can be either melodic or rhythmic, but it's usually both. What's the difference between melodic and rhythmic? Right, so melody has pitch and it Uh has, has differing pitch. So an ostinato, in this case, the melody bum, 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 is the melodic part of it. And then the rhythm is this dot, 
da da da, which ah. is also rhythmically complex because it's two against three. So to put it another way, you have a pattern that is two against three, ba 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 ba, and then you have a descending melody going bum bum bum, and another melody going bum 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 bum, and you put that together, you have. So the rhythmic ostinato is two against three. The melodic ostinato is this descending minor third. And the combination of those things creates what's called hemiola. Hemi what? Hemiola is two against three in a situation where you combine beats in a way that you're not expecting to create rhythmic tension. I think that's it. There's the unexpected there is this tension that's created, and it's done with repetition. So all of those things combined really makes for a memorable song. Yeah, I think that's a great way to, to articulate that. Now, I think that if you can manage to sing Carol of the Bells at all, you're a star. You're juggling ostinatos and hemiolas, and you're doing it really quickly. I'd argue that Carol of the Bells is basically classical rap. But there are some choristers who not only sing Carol of the Bells, they do so with a very specific vocal talent. I'll let Colin explain. What's so amazing about this song and how it's arranged is how we start from just the one voice. And then we keep adding in each additional voice. We start with the alto singing ding, dong, ding, dong. And then the tenors join them. Ding. And so you're layering in more and more parts. And then the harmony leads you towards this climax. We sort of move through the circle of fifths. We have this minor chord, which goes back to the home chord, and then back. But then the real spice happens right before the climax, and it's in the tenor part. And I'm a tenor, so I always like this part. <laughs> and we introduce not minor, but Dorian. We introduce the Dorian mode, which is an original church mode, by the way, in this chromatic line. Oh, how happy are their tones. And for those who aren't familiar, Dorian is one of several different church modes. I won't go into all of them, but it's a minor mode, but it has the raised six scale degree. It's actually also often associated with folk music. We hear it in lots of traditional songs. It has that minor quality to it, but it also has that longing and that mystery of this extra raised note in the middle of it. So that helps propel us towards this climax, which then takes place with the sopranos finally get to sing all the way up to their high note. Gaily they ring while people sing. And so all of that's culminating in that moment where the voices are converging, they're adding this more complex and chromatic harmony. And finally, we're also adding in the register. The sopranos get to get out of their mid-range and go all the way up. And uh, it, it gives us that climactic arrival point. From car commercials to shopping malls to home alone, Carol of the Bells rings through the Christmas season with an old familiarity and fresh excitement. Its compact four-note melody repeats quickly. Hemiolas create rhythmic tension, and a range of voices cascade over one another until the final crescendo. It's as though every element of this song propels us forward with rapt anticipation. 
And that's certainly the kind of watchful attention that the season of Advent demands of us. Not for hurried shopping, or cinematic suspense, or commercial success, but for paying attention to what is happening in the world. At the end of our interview with Lydia, Ricardo da Silva, my producer, posed perhaps the most important question. I hope you won't mind me saying this, but I, you know, I, I can see it in your face as I'm looking at you. There, there's a tremendous heartbreak. You're clearly emotional as you talk about Carol of the Bells. Why do you love it so much? I think it's just a beautiful song. And, you know, I, I have family in Ukraine right now. I have friends on the ground who are going through horrific things. This is a tragic, tragic time in Ukrainian history. It parallels what was happening 100 years ago. The echoes are there. It's devastating that we're seeing it again. And we're seeing cultural diplomacy from Ukraine again 100 years later. And I just hope a lot of people learn the history behind this and maybe hear it in a different light this year. Now, to close this episode, we'll leave you with Carol of the Bells, performed live by a choir of men and boys during the Christmas in Harvard Square concerts at St. Paul's Church in Cambridge. Hark is a production of American Media. This episode was written by me and produced by me and Ricardo Da Silva. Sound engineering by Jim Bilodeau. Our theme music was composed and recorded by Frank Tucson. Production assistance from our Joseph A. O'Hare Media Fellows, Cristobal Spielman, Jill Rice, and Christopher Parker. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. A big word of thanks to GIA Publications, Terry Roach of the Roaches, Tatiana Yarina, and James Kennerly, the Director of Music at St. Paul's Church and Choir School in Cambridge, Massachusetts, for providing much of the music on this episode. Hark is made possible by America Media's digital subscribers. 
Our subscribers can access all of America's content, including an article written on Carol of the Bells by my colleague, Father Jim McDermott. It's easy to become a subscriber. Just go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe. We'll put a link in the show notes. For America Media, I'm Maggie Van Dorn, wishing you a warm and hopeful Advent season. On the next episode of Hark, You cannot find this carol in any hymn book. We'll hear all about a bohemian duke turned saint. It's difficult to associate yourself personally with a king or a page or a man gathering fuel. But the idea of poverty and wealth going out and making things more equal, I think, is there.